Well, thank you, Peter. Uh, yeah, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Um, <laughs> uh, like Peter was saying, uh, my wife Caroline and I are, are members here at this church, and it's just been a huge blessing in our lives. So um, I'm privileged to be up here this morning um, and getting to speak, um, share from the Word, um, and I'm really excited to share um, what I feel God has put on my heart to share with you this morning. Um, so yeah, as we get ready for the Christmas season, uh, you may be overly familiar or fatigued with the phrase, or maybe not, um, Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, if you've, if you've heard this phrase, you know what it means. If not, it's kind of this idea that in all the hustle and the bustle and the secularization of the Christmas holiday, maybe we have forgotten the reason that Christmas exists. Jesus of Nazareth, the one called Christ. So, in light of Christmas's fast approach next Saturday, I want us to ask ourselves, who exactly is Jesus of Nazareth? And we maybe come to different conclusions on this question, even in this room. Uh, so I think it's, it's useful for us to, to think of this question afresh. And to do that, we are going to look at John chapter 9. Uh, so you can begin to flip there in your Bibles now. And I'm going to argue this morning that according to this chapter in Jesus' life, that the answer to who is Jesus of Nazareth is as following. Jesus is the righteous light of the world, who came in the, into the world to bring salvation to those who know they are in the dark and judgment on those who think they can see. Jesus is the righteous light of the world who came into the world to bring salvation to those who know they are in the dark and judgment on those who think they can see. So we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. Verse 1 in chapter 9 says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. You'll see if you look at your outline um, that... I'm going to be arguing here that Jesus is the light of the world. And that makes sense because in verse 5, 
He just comes out and says that, right? He, he gives that to us on a plate. Um, but let's jump in and start to get a little bit of a better idea of what exactly Jesus means by the light of the world. Because um, it is a phrase that we've maybe heard, but what does he mean by that? So Jesus is walking along like any old regular day, and he and his disciples pass by a blind man, right? That's how this begins. Well, not exactly, uh, unless for you, a regular day involves people threatening to throw stones at you and try to kill you. Uh, I'm guessing that's not a normal day for you. And that is what Jesus had just experienced. Um, in chapter 8, right before this chapter begins, um, he was just in the temple grounds and the religious leaders wanted to stone him and kill him for something that he had just said. And the thing that really upset them was he said a line that he said, before Abraham was, I am. So when he said that, he was saying, not only am I older than Abraham, which when they hear that, they're like, we know when you were born, you know, <laughs> Abraham has been dead for hundreds of years. What do you mean you're older than Abraham? But he's also equating himself with God by using the divine name from Exodus 3. You guys might remember this story in Exodus 3 when Moses is at the burning bush and God is sending Moses to the Israelites to deliver them from Egypt. Um, he says, what if they ask who sent me? And uh, like, who can I say you are? And God reveals his name. He says, I am who I am, right? Um, so Jesus is playing off that phrase. And tensions are really high right now. It's a big enough deal that they wanted to throw rocks at him, right? So it's not a normal day. As they pass by this blind man, the disciples have a question. Whose sin is responsible for this man's condition? In Western culture, we maybe wouldn't have this gut instinct. This, this wouldn't be our first question, I don't think. Um, you know, we don't have this idea that our behavior or maybe even our parents' behavior would be responsible for some physical malady that we have. We would more likely say, oh, it's a rods in the cones, right? Like something's wrong there and he can't see. Um, we're more naturalistic. But it was very common in this culture, and we're going to see it become important um, in this passage, that conditions like blindness were often tied to a, either a person's sin or a family's sin, some sort of thing that they did wrong. So this happened to them as a result. So the disciples want to know whose sin is responsible. Who is a sinner? And Jesus' response, he always has great responses. He's just kind of like, nah, neither. Uh, that, he's not really interested in that question. This man was born blind, he says, that God's works might be displayed in him or clearly seen. So for Jesus, that's what this encounter is all about. He's been making big claims about himself, again, saying, I am. And now he is doing the works of the one who sent him so that people might clearly see who he is and that he's telling the truth. Even now, he makes another big claim about himself, saying, I am the light of the world. Right? So again, this has particular significance to a first century Jewish audience. Uh, in the book of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements, and we've already, in our time together this morning, looked at two of them. Um, so, why light, though? What does light do? Uh, I think when you look at 
how light is used as a as symbol, symbolism throughout the Bible, you might say it points to kind of this idea of holiness or purity. And that's definitely part of what's going on here. But also, just ask yourself, it's, it's a metaphor, so what does light do? It exposes things that are in the darkness so that you can see them, right? For example, imagine it was 10.30 p.m. right now instead of 10.30 a.m., and, there, and the lights were turned off in this room. What would we, you wouldn't be able to see anything, right? If I asked you to tell me what is right over there and the only sense you're allowed to use is your eyes, you would have no idea. Right. So, but as soon as I flip the lights on, you can say, oh, that's a chair, or oh, that's a piano, or oh, that's a Lego piece that I don't want to step on, right? So the idea, you get it, is light enables us to see, to know what's there. And for this blind man, that's of special significance right now, isn't it? He's never seen his parents. He's never seen a flower He doesn't know what color is. So Jesus heals this man and enables him to see by wiping some mud on his eyes and sending him to wash in a pool called scent. Now log that um, little detail about scent because that idea of being sent or who is sent is going to be a central theme in this passage moving forward. So Jesus heals the man. Jesus had compassion on him. He has the power to heal, and so he restores the man's eyes. Isn't Jesus awesome? But this, we could stop right here, and the main takeaway from this passage might be that Jesus has compassion on the weak and the downtrodden, and that he has power to heal. He can do all things. And those things are totally true, and like, we could focus on that, and that would be awesome. But I actually think there's even deeper meaning and teaching here to what Jesus is trying to do and orchestrating here. He's making some very intentional decisions that we're going to look at to try to make an even bigger point than the fact that he has the power to heal and that he's compassionate, which he is those things. And he's doing that because he wants to cast light upon himself, that that we may clearly see who he is. So when Jesus said he is the light of the world, he means that he came into a dark world to bring light. That we may clearly see the truth about ourselves, the truth about our world, everything we experience, and the truth about who he is. So let's keep reading. Uh, And we're going to read 13 through 34. As I read this next chunk, I want you to look for ways that the leaders are trying to discredit Jesus. So look at the Pharisees and try to pick out a few different ways that they're trying to discredit Jesus. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind. 
and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Okay. I think in this in this passage of verses, we see that Jesus is the righteous one who is sent by God. You can see that in your outline. So our setting now changes, and we enter into sort of a, a trial scene where the man who recovered his sight is brought before some of the religious leaders. In verses 1 through 12, the disciples want to know, is this blind man a sinner? And now, seeing Jesus heal on the Sabbath, the religious leaders want to prove that Jesus is a sinner. He is not sent by God, according to them. In fact, he can't be who he says he is. I think, though, in their stubborn refusal of facts, they actually help us to see that the opposite of their assertion is true. I think the religious leaders help us to see that Jesus is the righteous one who is sent by God. So to start, John gives us a detail that keys us into what Jesus is doing. He wants to cause a stir that sheds lights on people's hearts. And that is why we see in verse 14 that he chose the Sabbath to perform this act. Which, the Sabbath, if, if you were Jewish, if you were observing the Old Testament law, it's the seventh day of the week, which is set apart to, as a holy day to God. Right? You don't do work, you're resting and you're acknowledging and remembering God and his presence in your life and his control. Uh, now, you may say, didn't he just happen to meet the guy and choose to heal him when it, when it happened, right? Isn't this just any old, ordinary day? Maybe it's just a coincidence that this healing happened on the Sabbath, right? But we've already said that for Jesus, this is not any ordinary day. But what Jesus did... Healing on the Sabbath is the primary piece of evidence that the Pharisees used to try to prove that Jesus is a sinner. And we see that starting in verse 16. 
So we should ask ourselves, was this act, Jesus healing on the Sabbath, sinful? And you might say, of course it isn't, right? Like, (laughs) it seems like a nice thing to do. Uh, But the Pharisees were so concerned with keeping God's law to the T, uh, which is a good desire, that they had built a bunch of extra traditions around the different commandments to ensure that they got nowhere near breaking the law, right? It's like the cliff is here, so let's, let's build a whole bunch of stuff back here so that we don't fall over. Um, but what happened is that over time, over generations, the traditions became akin to law. And so instead of God's law given by God to Moses, we are now following and observing traditions started by man and written by man. Uh, and calling them or putting them on the level of God's requirements. So Jesus actually heals on the Sabbath several times throughout his ministry. And every time without uh, exception, it causes a stir. Let's, this is a helpful example in Matthew 12, 10 through 12. You don't have to flip there. He, uh, what's going on? It says, And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So in Jesus' mind, it's clear. Like, he's not breaking the law by healing a blind man on the Sabbath. Rather, he is doing good. A righteous act, even. But he knows that this act, especially when when done with mud and physical touch, uh, will be condemned by some of the Pharisees as working on the Sabbath. And it will cause a stir to get people talking and to get people thinking about Jesus. It will shed light on what is in the religious leaders' hearts. So let's look into more of this trial that goes on. And again, the key question that gets placed on trial is, is Jesus sent from God, the Messiah, the righteous one, or is he a sinner? And thus, he can't be sent by God if he is a sinner. I had you look for ways that the Pharisees try to discredit Jesus as we read through that passage. Their first strategy that I see is in verse 18. And they say, you know, well, this man can't actually have been born blind. Right? So they first go to, they think it's a sham. Maybe Jesus bribed this guy to pretend like he used to be blind and then he got his sight back. Like, it can't be true. Um, so they bring in his parents to try to get proof that it was all a fake. Um, but in verse 22, of course, or 20, his parents, of course, affirm that the man is indeed their son, that he was born blind. So strategy one backfires, right? It, it wasn't a sham. Uh, but this leads to another strategy that they have to discredit Jesus, and we see that in 22. The leaders had already decided that whoever acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue, essentially kicked out of the community, excommunicated. Um, So now social pressure is being used and applied to try to suppress the truth. Um, We see this in John 12. Too. Uh, a really cool example um, that was going on with the religious leaders. I'll read 42 and 43 from chapter 12. Yet at the same time, 
Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, that being Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So that's going on. Uh, There's social pressure where if you say you believe in Jesus, you lose everything. Uh, So that's another one of their strategies. Next, they really show their cards in verse 24. Uh, They know that Jesus must be a sinner, they say, uh, because he doesn't honor the Sabbath according to their pharisaical tradition. Um, So their verdict is in. Jesus is not sent from God. Case closed. Trial over. And really, though, for all of their investigating, for all of their questioning, their minds already have seemed to have been made up ahead of time, right? Like, this does not seem like it was a, a fair trial or let's hear what this guy has to say and maybe we'll change our minds. Um, there's actually a cool detail in this passage in 29 that we don't really have time to dig in a ton to. Um, but when they say that we know that God spoke to Moses... Um, we've actually already touched on this earlier, that idea of in Exodus when, when God revealed himself and said, I am who I am, um, he spoke to Moses, right? So they're, they're even thinking back themselves to that moment. Um, and so when Jesus is making, again, those I am statements, he really is putting himself in the God position, right? He's like the one who speaks, um, rather than the, the one who speaks with divine authority, one greater than Moses is here. So I, that, that's a really fun little detail that we don't actually have time to get into. But um, let's go to the man, right? So we see the man in his interaction with the Pharisees, and he's now starting to get a little frustrated, confused, and very bold uh, in his interaction with them. Uh, the man sees that the Pharisees don't seem to be paying attention to his testimony, or they just don't want to hear it. So he says, you know, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know, but I can't deny. I know what I've seen him do in my life, and you can't change that no matter what you try to spin on it. Um, So as this passage goes on, he grows more and more confident um, that Jesus is not a sinner and that Jesus must be from God. Look at the boldness that he has in 30 through 33. Bearing in mind that the consequence for him acknowledging that Jesus is sent by God is excommunication. He's got his community, he's got his family on the line, and he is still willing to make these, this bold stand. Um, he builds a coherent case based on, one, the scriptures, by saying we know that God does not listen to sinners. Uh, he's referring to like Isaiah 1 and different, different passages. Um, so he's pointing them to the scriptures, and he says... Um, and on experience, right? No one has the power to heal the blind. Like, if you guys have seen anyone else doing this, let me know, and, like, maybe we'll look into it. But Jesus is the only guy who seems like he's able to do this. Um, So he's basically saying, if Jesus were not from God, he could not have done these works that point to his authority, that point to the fact that he's telling the truth. So, ironically, this common man is standing up in the face of the greatest religious minds of the day and making them look kind of foolish, right? He's making a compelling case that Jesus' works speak for themselves and they help us to see the truth. That brings us back to the beginning, 
uh, where, where Jesus spoke in verse 4 of the works of God being displayed through this man's life. Jesus is flipping on the lights in the room. Uh, he's, he's doing the works that back up the claims that he's made about himself. Namely, that not only is he not a sinner, he is the righteous one who is sent by God. So how does this apply for us Christmas 2021? Uh, what was the cost for this man uh, when he stood up for what he saw Jesus do in his life? Well, the Pharisees responded again, how dare you, in verse 34. You're a sinner, and they kick him out, right? He, he takes on the cost of, of excommunication. He is thrown out of his community. We see three different groups of people in this section. There's the Pharisees, who seem to have prejudged what's true and are actively suppressing any new evidence, regardless of what's brought before them. There's the blind man's parents and the leaders who, in John 12, secretly believe in Jesus but are too afraid to publicly acknowledge him. Um, And as verse 43 said in 12, they love human praise more than they love God. So that's the second group. And then the third type of person we see is the blind man who can't deny what he's seen Jesus do in his life. Sure, it may mean ridicule and excommunication, but he can't suppress this truth. He doesn't even have all the answers yet at this point about who Jesus is. uh, But he's so captivated by how incredible this Jesus is that he stands his ground. For those of us who have experienced the sweetness of Jesus' touch of salvation, I think we have a lot to learn from this blind man. How do we respond when Jesus is placed on trial by those around us? Are we quick and ready to share about what Christ has done to transform our lives? Do we, have, do we know our testimony, our story about what we've seen Jesus do? The cost for this guy to bear witness about Christ was high. It was too high for his parents. And we may face the cost of ridicule or even excommunication from our groups as we stand up for the claim that Jesus is king. It's just as unpopular today as it was in Jesus' time. But he had been so enamored with what Jesus had done for him, so grateful by the good news that Jesus had saved him, or that had given him sight, that he couldn't help but gush about Jesus, regardless of the circumstances or the consequences. So, as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us as our Savior, let our hearts be stirred by the transforming work of the gospel. With that, let's see how this narrative comes to a close. And we'll read 35 through 41. Jesus heard that the man had thrown him out, or that they had thrown him out. And when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. 
But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. So now our question of who is Jesus of Nazareth gets even more clarity in these closing verses. Already we've seen that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the righteous one who is sent by God. And now finally here, we see that he is the bringer of salvation and of judgment. Jesus finds the man and states his identity clearly as the son of man in verses 35 through 37, which is a Old Testament allusion that has a lot of links to the Messiah figure. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's, he's being pretty explicit here about who he is when he says that he is the son of man. Um, but looking at verse 39, who Jesus is and his purpose in coming to the world is apparently twofold. Uh, it's so that the blind will see. Yes. We'll get to that. But it's also so that those who see will become blind. Again, Jesus is the light of the world. And what does light do? It allows me to see what's really there, the truth. So when the Pharisees say, what, are we blind too? The truth about them and their hearts is clearly seen. They have hard, unbelieving hearts. They are so confident that they see, that they know that Jesus is a sinner, that they know Jesus is a fraud. And, and so the irony with their claim to see the truth is that they are so sure ahead of time that they are right, that Jesus is false, that even when clear, humble, compelling evidence is placed right before them, that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for their entire lives. He's here. He's right in front of you. They're unable to see it. They can't believe it. And they suppress the truth. Maybe now we don't say we know that Jesus is a sinner. Maybe today we say we know that the stories about Jesus are made up. He could never heal a blind man by touch. He never rose from the dead. It's Christmas, almost, in six days. Jesus came among us in a human body over 2,000 years ago to perform the works of God that we may see our need for him and believe in him. But if we claim to see on our own and we reject God's Son, then our only way to be reconciled to our loving Father is also rejected and our guilt remains so if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with jesus's claims about himself welcome we're really glad that you're here and you're and you're listening to jesus's claims as you consider who jesus is the reason for the christmas season ask yourself have you given him a fair hearing or anytime you come to hear Jesus' testimony about himself, do you come with your mind already made up? I know that he's a sinner. I know that the stories are just legends. I invite you this Christmas season to consider the gospel anew with open eyes. The formerly blind man, however, believes. He has eyes to see and he worships. 
So now for the blind man, not only is he no longer physically blind, but he is no longer spiritually blind as well. He is able to see Jesus for who he really is. He is not a sinner. He is the sent one, the son of man, the light of the world, the Messiah. He saw that he needed a Messiah because he saw that he was blind. It's a blindness that goes beyond our eyes. It's a soul condition. We are lost in darkness, all of us. If we were put on a trial the way Jesus was before the Pharisees, and the question was, is this man a sinner? The verdict is guilty. I'm a sinner. Steeped in sin at birth. And like Jesus said here, apart from him, my guilt remains. Jesus came into the world because I need a savior. In, in John 1, the idea of Jesus as light is introduced. It's, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This shows us the significance of the blind man's and our own belief in the Son of Man. By believing in his name, I become one of God's children. No longer guilty of sin and rescued from death. This is the wonderful gospel message that we gather because of and that was made possible by Jesus coming into the world for Christmas. And John Newton's classic hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the light of the world. You gave us uh, the truth to know who you are, and we praise you and worship you for Christmas, uh, for the availability of the good news to be reconciled into your family and to become your children. We love you, Lord, and I pray that you would be glorified um, among the people here um, as we celebrate your coming into the world and give you the glory that is due your name. We thank you, Jesus, that you opened up the door to give us eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen.